It's Great Mondays Radio. I'm Josh Levine, your host, founder of Great Mondays. We help executives from hypergrowth technology and social enterprise organizations build cultures that attract, engage, and retain top talent. If you'd like to be a guest on our program, hang out for about 20 minutes and I'll tell you how. Zip, zap, zop. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to Great Mondays Radio. I am so excited. Uh, today to have Aubrey Blanche Seriano, who is the VP of Equitable Ops at Culture Amp. Uh, she's a longtime uh, peer and someone I've looked up to and, and someone I go to for uh, lots of inspiration and insight when it comes to all things uh, DEI and diversity and just really smart thinking around this kind of work. Uh, and I'm I'm so excited to have Aubrey on. Thank you so much for coming on to Great Mondays. Yeah, I'm so excited to be here. I feel like it's been a long road to get to this conversation. <laughs> well, we did it. We did it. Um, so Aubrey, you're, you, we first met, you spoke at a conference and um, you're, you the, it's, I was in the audience, you were speaking and the, and how you started to, or how you were framing up uh, diversity, this was, I don't know, a bucket of years ago, many, many years ago, really struck me in, in a, in a way that was like, it was just something that I hadn't heard. Like a lot of people were talking about diversity, but the way that you frame it. And I wondered if you could give us just a quick primer on kind of how you think about diversity and, um, just kind of how we got here, how you got here to this role, because there's a lot of folks that are like, oh, this is something I'd like to do. Or yeah. they have someone that they're hiring that's in this role. Yeah, absolutely. So I think um, probably the thing that I said that freaked out everybody in the audience is like, they're like, oh, it's a DEI expert. And I come on stage, I'm like, fuck diversity. And everyone's like, what? And it. my point is not that like philosophically diversity is not a good thing. Like I don't need to rattle off the McKinsey studies for you, but I really believe and all of my work has really focused on this idea of equity as a first priority. And partially that's because I think like methodologically, it actually gets you to the outcomes that I would say we all agree on, but it's 2024. So we can't take that as a given. <laughs> and, but, but really, I think that um, a lot of the ways, both the reasons that diversity has been a focus in this field, and then the ways that manifests really set the entire project up for failure. So I think mm. one focusing on diversity it's not that I think it's irrelevant. I do think you need to measure representation and things like that. But I think a narrow focus on like head counting and who's in the room allows us to ignore a lot of the structural factors that cause that outcome, right? Like diversity is an outcome. Yeah. And if we get really obsessed with focusing on it, we often employ methodologies to move the numbers that either aren't sustainable or are really harmful and problematic. Right. So like one of the reasons I hate the word diversity is because people talk about this idea of like a diversity hire as if like we're hiring people just because of their demographics as opposed to the fact that they have skills and also they come from a background that's underrepresented. And so when you focus on equity, you're focusing on the inputs. 
You're focusing on the process that gets us to that outcome. And I think when we focus on making really strong processes that incentivize us to treat people well, fairly, understand the systemic barriers that they face and move them, we actually end up in a better place. And I find that when you have that conversation with people, it's not only easier to focus the champions on the right things, mm. it's also a lot easier to talk to the detractors and either get them on board or at least get them to shut up. So give me the, so then uh, tell me how you've been doing this work. I think one of the things, one story that you've shared with me previously um, is how when you were first brought on to Culture Amp, they were like, great, let's get started. And you were like, whoa, we can't do that yet. Um, it, and it to me is exactly in this sort of Aubrey Lane of, um, it's not what you think it is. And I'm going to tell you, you know, I'm going to explain it to you. So please share so I can absorb it again and the audience can hear what your process is like, how you can overcome or outmaneuver that diversity hire mentality. Yeah. So I think part of it is being really clear about the order of operations. So I talk about that and there's kind of two ways that that comes up. One, you have to think about like, what's the most root level problem in a business? And so for me, I think about policies and process, the right versions of those need to be in place first. Mm. And that's a bit counterintuitive because the average sort of executive who's saying, okay, I'm committed to diversity. I'm going to hire somebody and, you know, get a consultant like me or, you know, hire someone full time it's a recruiting problem. And it's not a recruiting problem. Recruiting is a part of the solution, but the underlying problem is that you built a business that sucks for certain people. And I think there's two reasons is one, that's not intuitive, but two, it's actually a really difficult emotional truth to metabolize. That, that is hard. <laughs> that is going to be a hard thing to say, right? Like for right. people to go, whoa, I just, just looking for, right? Like what's the kind of hard thing to do? You're telling me my entire business is is not hospitable? Yeah. And and I think, so one, you need to start with a little compassion for the folks that you're giving that truth to <laughs> that say it with kindness. That's right. Well, okay. But yes. Also, Good. Like I am really no bullshit with people where uh, people say, oh, well, I want to start with employee resource groups and recruiting. And I said, mm -hmm. cool. Do you want to fail? And they say, no. I say, because that's a great recipe for failure. And I find that just by asking slightly pointed questions, you can get people on the same page. So I say, are you committed? Do you want to be successful? And do you trust my experience working with, you know, hundreds of companies on this issue? And so they say, yes. And I say, well, let me lay out a full plan and a vision for you about what this would look like. Mm -hmm. So first is getting the right policies in place. And then the most important thing you can do is audit processes. So it's not sexy. It doesn't always feel like the EI <laughs> no, work. it is not, right. But, um, you know, like the most important thing that my equity and inclusion team does at CultureAmp is we aggressively audit our performance, promotion, and pay processes by seven dimensions of diversity. And the reason for that is because at the end of the day, we can't go recruit if we can't look every candidate in the face and say, we are confident that you can equitably grow your career here. We believe that you will be paid fairly based on the impact that you make to the business. Like 
that's so much more compelling. And when people say, how do you guarantee that? We say, here's the math. Like, here's the rigor that we bring to our approach Mm. so that we can look you in the face and tell you that honestly. And I think that if every business started focusing on that, we would see a lot more progress on DEI. But the problem is that a lot of that work is not shiny, it's not visible, and it's not as exciting to tell a story about. And so it requires more work on behalf of the leaders to explain to people why it's so important because for so long, you know, we've started with training, we've started with updating our websites. And so there's a lot of candidates even that will say like, why wasn't there an inclusion speaker for this heritage month? And it's not that that's a terrible question. It's that, hey, if I have limited resources, am I better positioned to only do a heritage month celebration? Or should I spend that money on audits of your performance review process? And I'll tell you from my benefits perspective, I would rather make sure women get paid than they get cupcakes on International Women's Day. (laughs) I love it. Pay over cupcakes. Um, Totally. Well, so what is, let's get more specific since I know I have a particularly nerdy audience. Um, uh, what does, and when we think about the three things you said were performance, promotion, and pay, is that correct? Okay. Yeah. Good. I got that right. So um, because I'm the assumption that we're going on is the majority of organizations, but this is why we're here in this this world the way it is, is that the performance, promotion, and pay are not in this are not suited, are not hospitable, are not bringing people along. Um, What does, can you do a compare and contrast for each of those pieces of like, oh, when performance isn't there, but the performance piece of it isn't there and it's, and it's, it is uh, hostile or the promotion piece isn't there. And and then how, how does that look? What's an example of Yeah. So um, math nerds unite, uh, love talking to those. I think it's really the, the math is slightly different for each process, but for performance, for example, one, we know that um, there's been this move to like get rid of the performance review process, which I'm completely against. I do think that a lot of performance is busted and we need to do better. Um, But if you don't have a process, if you don't have ratings, you have nothing to audit to make sure that things Mm. are fair. And so in a world in which I see performance as fair, what I'm looking at is the distribution of ratings between different demographic groups. Mm. So if my math is showing me, for example, that the majority of white men are in the top two rating categories, but only, you know, 5% of black women are in those top two rating categories, then I know that something is going wrong with my performance process, right? Because I have an underlying assumption that people from all demographic groups are capable of high performance. And I believe that they can achieve that, but there might be something wrong with my measurement instrument if I'm not seeing that. And so I also think it's really important, Josh, to say that like I come in and I never tell my clients, this of your process is busted. What I say is that our macro research tells us that these patterns tend to exist we need to audit your processes to understand whether your business has those patterns as well and what we want to do to address them. Mm. So it's possible that a company is actually running a super equitable promotion process, but unless you go measure it, you have no idea, right? 
And it's also important that you don't just do these things once because I've been in companies, you know, culture, we've been doing these really extensive audits for, you know, more than four years at this point. And we've had examples where, so we run our audits twice. We run them at the beginning of the process and then we do calibrations to fix any issues. And then we run them again before we finalize any decisions. And we've had examples where in our first audit, um, you know, the previous cycle, there were no issues. It was super easy. And then in the next cycle, we had some skews that did not look right to us that we couldn't justify. And so we had to go back to managers and show them the data and not mandate that they change ratings, but say, could we have a deeper conversation about how you arrived at the ratings? Could there be bias in there? If we do a second look, would we result in different judgments? And I'll tell you, most of the time, the answer is yes. Mm -hmm. so by the time we get to that second audit, it's clean. Mm. But that's just important is that just because you get it right once as a company, you have to understand that that systemic bias can always creep in. So equity has to be a process and a practice, not a thing you do one time. Mm -hmm. Wow. Yeah, right. So let's look at the using the tools, like you said, the instruments that we have in order to measure some of these, look for those distributions. Let's actually dig in and and decide if we've done this correctly. Um, and then, like you said, you can you can back it up when you make an offer or you are drawing people in, right? We're really talking about bringing more people in. and you can say this is this is why you're going to be successful here because we all know to your earlier point, that one more ERG employee resource group is does not a solution make, right? Absolutely. That's just, that's a way to burn people out. Totally. And that's not me saying that ERGs don't have value. I oh, actually right, right. think they're a really important part of an overall strategy. But to your point about burnout, you have to make sure that the role of an ERG lead or the purpose of an ERG is specific to what is reasonable for it to accomplish. So for example, at CultureAmp, my you know equity and inclusion team is accountable for systemic equity. Our ERG leads in their communities are partners in building connection and celebration of different identities. But we also have very clear role descriptions for what our leaders are accountable to do and also what they are specifically not accountable mm. to do. So mm -hmm. um, we, you know, they're some of our key mechanisms for feedback to tell my team what's not working. But if there is an issue with an employee with racism or ableism, that ERG is not on the hook to solve that. That is our team. But we do trust that they have a perspective that's valuable. So I just think it's important not to to like all of these different pieces, people always ask, often ask me the binary question of like, is X good or bad? Right. Is it good or My bad? My answer, right. probably frustratingly, is almost always, it entirely depends on the context and how it's implemented. Mm -hmm. Can we take a quick detour? How many um, employees uh, are uh, at uh, Culture Amp? We're close to a thousand folks globally now. Wow, that's amazing. I, I I remember I remember way back when it was teensy weensy. So a thousand folks globally. Yeah. How big is your equity and inclusion team? Oh, so that's um that's a good question. So I run equitable operations, which looks after uh, people ops, which is like processes, policies, systems, mobility, mm -hmm. equity and inclusion, sustainability, and our 
corporate foundation. So we kind of take an equity lens to everything. So Mm -hmm. if you count my whole team, we're about 10 people. Um, but my sort of, I have two folks on my team, two senior managers who are experts in equity and inclusion specifically, and they not only work with my team, but they work with our entire people and experience team. Mm -hmm. So we think about like a lot of the work that our team does is as almost like internal consultants. So a good example, we're working on overhauling our manager training this year. And that project is owned by our learning and leadership team. But, you know, one of my team members is like a core contributor to that to make sure that we don't offer inclusion training and manager training. We offer manager training that sets the expectation for inclusive leadership. So, um, so yeah, it's a very horizontal strategy. Um, and so by telling you how big my team is, I'm not probably doing a great job of representing how many people are doing DEI work in culture. Uh, I guess I just wanted to kind of put a pin in scale and scope when we're thinking about this when other people are like, oh, what does my equity and inclusion team effort look like? Right. And and so, sure, of course, there's going to be, it's a different kind of organization and all that, but at least just something in there again, just a quick diversion. The HR nerd in me is like, think of it this way, since I would consider myself like a DEI expert in addition to the the brilliant folks on my team, we're about a thousand people. We have three DEI experts on staff. So I generally tell companies like your ratio should probably be between one DEI person for every three to 500 people. Okay. Um, that's, that's a after fair. that scale, it becomes really hard to kind of touch all the pieces that you want, but like, that's a good ratio. Um, I think if you're really wanting to embed DEI in the way that you treat people and then also sort of bring that forward into your business operations. All right. So we've already we've already said fuck diversity, but now we're going to get into uh, the backlash du jour, um, which yeah. is that people are declaring DEI dead. Now, we saw a foreshadowing of that, of this, I think feel like about halfway through last year when some of those initial efforts uh, coming out of uh, the Black Lives Matter movement, right? Mm -hmm. Everybody said, yes, this is really important. And then they did something about it. And I felt like last year was the year where it kind of was like, oh, that person with the the diversity, you know, head of diversity just left, right? Like we hired a person or whatever the effort is started to collapse. And so that to me was the foreshadow of that. And we're like, no, this is still important, but obviously something's not right. And, but I don't know, we don't really have the effort, the the time for this. And now there's another sort of, it's another precipitous moment in society, sort of in the air around uh, the firing of the president of Harvard um, and sort of the racial undertones of that and how that is actually become kind of a banner for those people to say, oh, that's actually not, we, we shouldn't, focusing on DEI is, is not the way forward. So I'm, I'm hoping that this is all stuff that I'm just reading about and I don't even begin to pretend to comprehend, but I'm hoping that you can give, you can share a little bit of your more informed perspective around what is going on and why it does or does not matter and how to persevere, I suppose. Yeah. So I think it's really important to situate like this exact moment where like a bunch of, you know, 
prominent white or white adjacent dudes are like declaring DEI dead. But I think what's really important is that they've made up their own idea of what DEI is and then said they hate it as opposed to actually understanding what it constitutes. So I think there's that dynamic, but I think it's really important to situate it in this broader pattern that we've seen basically since the beginning of the civil rights movement, yeah. um, where for every bit of progress that's made, there's significant backlash because people who are in power, who sort of have advantage in the status quo, perceive an advancement of rights or treatment for other people as taking away from them right? It's this very zero-sum thinking. People get defensive. They start pushing back. And so like on some level, my vibe is like seeing this done that your shit is really tired. Like it's very unoriginal and it's not particularly intellectually rigorous if I'm being generous in my characterization. And so part of it for me is like, what can we learn from the backlash, but also how do we not get mired in it? Mm -hmm. So one, I think it's really important to listen and understand what misconceptions and actually misinformation is being put out there about our work. And I think it's important to say that there are some folks who are super disingenuous to malicious that are putting that out. But I also think it's important for us as practitioners to own the ways that we haven't articulated ourselves that have contributed to that. Like, I think it's helpful as a frame. Hmm. Um, and so for me, I tend to just not engage with people, one, who are disingenuous, like don't feed the trolls. Yeah, that's right. But I do think there's a lot of people whose values are actually aligned to this work that often get captured by that misinformation. And so my particular approach to that is to actually ask a series of questions that I kind of sneakily already probably know the answers to, Yeah. but get the values underneath the work as opposed to getting caught in like the politicized language up top. So when someone says like, oh, DEI is bullshit, I say, well, do you think people should be treated fairly at work? Most people are going to say yes to that. And I say, great. So do you believe historically that everyone's been treated fairly regardless of their background? Again, it's pretty weird for people to say yes to that. I say, great. So do you think that if people haven't been treated fairly, we should make changes to make sure that happens? And people say yes. And I go, well, that's actually what DEI is about. And I'll give it to you that that hasn't always been done in the best way, but there's also a lot of work that's been done to wake, make the world fairer, which is what you just said was important to you. Mm -hmm. And if you start there, you tend to have much more productive conversations about like the limits of what corrective action should look like, all of that, because people often say, well, I don't want people to get hired because of their demographics. And I'm like, yeah. well, the math says that there's a lot of really unqualified white men who have been hired because of their demographics for a long time. Why are you not upset about that? Right. I just stare until people have an answer. Yeah. Well, I, okay. So here's the pushback that, that I hear. This is one kind of mm -hmm. um, dichotomy, which is, well, but not I don't want to I don't want to invest in this effort at the expense of the profitability or the success of the business. Things are going sideways for us in tech right now. We don't have the resources or or what have you, right? It's it seems to your point, it's like good or bad. It seems like 
we should the the underlying argument is we shouldn't focus on this because it's actually bringing us down in whatever way, right? I mean, we have to we have to bring in a candidate who happens to be a color and maybe they're not the you know the best qualified or whatever it is, right? So it's the business counterpoint. Yeah, I think like when someone says something like that, I dig in and I say, why do you assume that the candidate from an underrepresented background isn't qualified? Like, that's actually fucking racist. <laughs> and so people yeah. tend to be a little taken aback by that. But I think like, let's actually unpack why you think there's a trade-off between competency and demographics right? Do you have an underlying belief that people from a particular background are more qualified? I think that is an important conversation to have. It requires delicacy. But I think this goes back to your earlier point about everyone says, let's get started. And I think the place we get started is actually diving really deep into leadership's values and attitudes. Because if we don't get on the same page about our values and our philosophies about this, we end up engaging in performative actions or things that aren't effective. And so it's the go to slow to go fast mentality. But again, I tend to flip things on their head with business leaders and say things like, great, your business is in a tough place. Can you afford to hire lower quality talent? Right. Right. That's, I mean, that's, I think a very, um, a good, yeah, that, that's the flip, right? That's a really good, uh, way to think about it. And I think then we can have, we can have a productive conversation because it is more about the investment in the change, which you already brought up, right? That's, that to me is really where we start to push on the sensitive area is that like, this is the way we've done it. It's going to be a pain in my ass. I can't do as much of this work over here if we have to change processes around performance over here uh, to do that, right? And and they have to believe and or understand, I think believe is the right word. They have to believe that this investment is going to improve outcomes for both people and business. Yeah. And I think one of the things that's really important, especially for someone who's really motivated by like traditional business metrics, is it's really important to talk about valuing the counterfactual. And what I mean by that is that that we talk about like, oh, it's going to cost me so much money to invest in DEI, whatever that sort of quantum is. Yeah, but yeah, I'm yeah, like, yeah. how much money have you lost due to preventable attrition? for people from marginalized backgrounds. Like how many dollars have you spent replacing those individuals and the institutional knowledge that you've lost? Let's actually do an apples to apples comparison. And what I find is when people actually take the time to do the math, they uh, get what I've been saying all along, which is investing in you know effective equity programs and processes is actually one of the most cost-effective and financially defensible people investments you can make. So the other way I say it, especially if I'm talking to a board of directors, is if your CEO doesn't understand how this is a cost savings program, they're probably not qualified to run a PL. Hmm. <laughs> oof. Oof. <laughs> let's let that let's let that uh hang there for a second. Oof. Yeah, that uh 
it does um that does sting but i think but you know the one thing is just because you're unqualified now doesn't mean that's inevitable right is that i get that everyone has things to learn and i never want to shame someone for not knowing something but i often find that people come to me acting like they're very informed on something that they've spent 3.4 seconds thinking about mm. and so i think it's it's really incumbent on leaders to think about the fact that you know, I work at a business where, you know, the reason that my team has done so well is because leadership, they don't really care about the business case for diversity. It's pretty clear at Culturant because we help companies on their DEI journeys. But when I talk to our leadership team, when I talk to our founders, they're pretty clear. This is the type of business they want to run because that's the type of people they are, that they want people in their business to be treated well. They right. happen to also get financial benefits from that, and that's great. But I also want to emphasize that like that motivation of just, I believe that the world, I want the world to be a place where these things are true, is a much more solid um, justification than and one that's going to withstand the kind of backlash of the climate that we're in. So mm -hmm. I think it's really important that like we spend a little bit of time on the financial and business case, but if like your underlying justification is like my bank account will get fatter if I'm good to black people, like that's not the compelling case you think it is. <laughs> Yeah, And so I just want to call that out that like, I've never seen a company who's doing, you know, equity work solely for the business case be successful in the long term. Mm. So I know how to articulate it. But like, I'm just going to be honest that if that's your only business, it's actually kind of better for you to publicly say this is not a priority for me. And so that's probably the other thing that I think that is a little bit spicy. Mm. I would rather companies be honest if they don't give a shit. It's a choice. It is a strategic choice. And so let's let's agree that it's it is okay to decide that that's not a priority for you. It's legal, let's say, right? Like I I you and I obviously believe it's something that should be done, but I feel like the backlash is partially because uh or leaders felt like almost forced into it. And there are there are plenty of strategic choices out there that an organization can decide to or not to do. There's plenty of things that that um, Amazon does, and that you know I don't agree with, but it's not they have the right to do it. And so you can just say it and say this is not a priority for us right now, as opposed to pretending like it is. Absolutely. Like, I don't think it's particularly ethically defensible, but you have the right to make that choice. Sure. But the reason for me that that's so important. So like, obviously, like Basecamp, Coinbase are kind of like famous examples of companies who have done this. And for me, I think it's really important because often companies put out this branding that says like, we care about these things. And people from marginalized backgrounds believe that marketing and they go into those companies that aren't actually investing in it, and they are meaningfully harmed yeah. by that experience. Yeah. And so my thing is, if you say right on the masthead, this is not a priority for us, then people can opt out of participating, whether that's as a consumer or as an employee in your business, they can make an informed decision about whether your values and practices align with their values and how they want to be treated. And so 
I actually think it is more ethical to say you don't give a shit than to say you do and not actually invest in the work. And I just think that's important is that you are practicing like, or you're not putting people in harm's way because you're not being disingenuous. Mm, I think this requires a lot of, mm, I'll call it (laughs) self-awareness, right? Like that's, I think that is really what perhaps we're we're missing uh maybe some of these fo- these folks that lead these organizations they don't realize that that's in fact the case and I, I don't know i just find that really enlightening um to go in that direction so let's then pull all this together in this sort of zeitgeist of the moment and talk about how this kind of work has it probably has been, but is now more than ever, um, a political debate. It's been divisive and or you know framed in that way. We you know the 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 kind of the concept is sort of lefty lefty liberal liberal organizations are gonna be hiring more people of color versus you know the the conservative right-leaning organizations are going to be focused exclusively on increasing the stock price, whatever that might be. Yeah, I think it has become politicized, but it honestly doesn't have to be. And I think it's really important that when we paint issues like this on the left-right kind of spectrum, we're actually also speaking about a time-bound construct. So I think it's actually completely possible to, to generate a conservative argument for this work right and so whether that's financially conservative that like you know our bottom line is the thing that's most important we're going to invest in you know um cost savings talent strategies great fund your dei program um i want to increase my profits i need to make sure that my employee base reflects and understands the consumer base that's rapidly diversifying and globalizing um versus you know, the sort of leftist social justice flavor justifications where to wrap people deserve dignity and human rights. Like, I tend to fall more in that camp, if I'm honest. But at the end of the day, we can find multiple justifications for this work that speak authentically to people from different backgrounds. And I think that it's really incumbent on those of us that are advocates and practitioners that we're able to tell those differentiated stories so that we can get more people um, on the bandwagon. But I don't think it is inevitable that this these kind of issues in these programs have to be politicized. I think it would be incorrect to say that they can be entirely depoliticized in that politics just means about power. And this work is about power and who has it and how it's shared. I think that's true. But I think the polarization that's attached to the politics of this is something that we can work around and we have to accept is one of the barriers to being successful in this work so we can thoughtfully navigate it. Yeah, I think really we're getting into that kind of very human tribal identity piece of this that's where it's coming from i i i really really find your point about politics being about power we it is in it is inseparable cuz this is about power from the very beginning of our conversation where it's oh someone else is taking power away from me and so that that is um 
an interesting concession or statement of fact, but it doesn't have to be polarizing. And that polarization is about us being part of a tribe and protecting our particular point of view or view of the world. And so, I, I mean, there's a lot of work to be done to make sure that, you know, we continue to be inclusive, not just because it's the right thing to do, but because it's also the beneficial thing to do. I think that's really an important point is because it's really easy for someone to go, oh, I'm losing power, I'm losing influence, so this is bad for me. But from every direction, we know that equity and equality is good for everybody. Or to put it, you know, the other way, systems of oppression and domination certainly impact those who are marginalized by them, but they are also bad for people in the more powerful group. And I think that, you know, asserting that and being able to tell stories about how that manifests is a part of the influence work that we do to sort of broaden the coalition that's pushing for these things. Business is powerful. I mean, that's, this is where we're coming together. And that's, I think for all the problems of, um, capitalism i think this is actually one of the one of the ways that businesses can business can actually be a force for good because we're all rallying around this idea of success and how do we become more successful yeah and i think the answer is you know i personally define success as a collective endeavor um and i think that's something that we all have the capability to do amazing i think we'll leave it there Aubrey Blanche Seriano, VP of Equitable Ops at Culture Amp. You can learn more about Aubrey at her website, aubreyblanche.com, A-U-B-R-E-Y-B-L-A-N-C-H-E.com. Thank you. I so, so appreciate you coming on and teaching us all about this work and deepening my understanding. It's amazing um, to know that you're, people are like you are out there fighting the good fight. And it's, uh, it's just incredible. You're, you're such an inspiration. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me. I feel lucky to have a lot of help. <laughs> Thank you. Thanks for listening to Great Mondays Radio. Hey, if you want to be a guest, head over to radio.greatmondays.com. And if you think this episode was interesting and your friends and fans would enjoy it, please share on social media. And if you want to get more people to understand the power of company culture in business today, please rate and review Great Mondays Radio on your podcast feed. It really helps us reach more people. If you want to hear more candid conversations with culture leaders, subscribe to Great Mondays Radio. I'd love to connect with you. Find me on LinkedIn at aka Josh Levine on YouTube at Great Mondays. And you can always email me, josh at greatmondays.com. Find out more about our work with hypergrowth technology and social enterprise organizations at greatmondays.com. I'm Josh Levine. Thanks for listening to Great Mondays Radio.